Hello, everyone. I'm AJ McKeon, the producer of the OnTick Protective Intelligence Podcast. Before we begin this episode, I wanted to take a quick moment to talk about recording quality. Due to the remote nature of these recordings, our audio quality may vary. We are working on a solution and appreciate your understanding. Thank you for listening, and now on to the podcast. Welcome to the OnTech Protective Intelligence Podcast. I'm Fred Burton, the Executive Director of the OnTech Center for Protective Intelligence. During my years as a counterterrorism agent with the U.S. State Department and time spent as a physical security expert in the private sector, I've seen it all and met many fascinating people along the way. This podcast series explores the riveting world of protective intelligence through conversations with leaders in the security field. I'm Fred Burton, and now on to the podcast. Hi, I'm Fred Burton here today with Carmen Medina, who is a former CIA Deputy Director of Intelligence and a 32-year veteran of the intelligence community. She's also the author of Rebels at Work, a handbook for leading change from within. Carmen, welcome to the OnTech podcast. Thanks, Fred. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Carmen, uh, you are one of those unique persons that I think has transformed the intelligence community and specifically from an analytical perspective. When you're looking at building a team, Carmen, what are some of the things you look for in people and putting this team together? Wow, good question. I can answer it at several levels. So when I'm interviewing an individual and just trying to get a sense if they are the kind of person that we want on the team, regardless of what their particular skills are. I'm looking for curiosity. I mean, I'm assuming almost everyone that we're going to talk to is intelligent. So I'm looking for that special quality like curiosity. And I like to say every question is part of the interview. So what is often a throwaway question, or they might think is a throwaway question, is what's the last thing you read? For me, it's a very important question, particularly because it reveals your attitude about reading and information gathering in general. And then, you know, this is not done enough in the intelligence or national security communities. I'm looking to assemble a team of people not a team of superstars. In fact, I'm, I'm looking to assemble a cognitive network that's got the right profile to deal with whatever sets of problems that we expect to deal with. And I, uh, you know, so for example, if the team is well-established, I might have in my mind, you know, we are missing a certain set of skills that I need to find. So Maybe, you know, it could be from an expertise area, I need an economist, but maybe what I'm looking for is a more imaginative, creative thinker than the ones that I have. So I always like to think of not everyone as a superstar, but as a network of cognitive talent that we use against a problem. Yeah, that's very interesting. And I've been fortunate to have put together protection teams in the past, Carmen, and uh, I know how difficult it is to kind of 
put the, the pieces of the puzzle together. From a management perspective, how do you actually go about thinking about the kind of people that you want? From a management perspective, well, I, I mentioned one thing, which is curiosity. I'm always looking for curious people. I'm looking for the right blend of talent on the team. So any kind of thinking style is going to work, at least in principle, based on the blend of talent that I'm looking for. So I'm not a high, for example, I'm not a highly detail-oriented person. I'm very bad at that. And so <laughs> I'm often looking for a detail-oriented person to at least balance me. I, you know, kind of interesting uh, axes that people might not think about are things like, are, are people optimists or pessimists? And I think that that's a cognitive bias that runs through everyone. Do they see the glass half full or half empty? And I actually want a blend of those types of people on my team. I don't want a team of Eeyores, but I also don't want a team of Pollyannas. <laughs> so I, I look to find a, a, a you know, I, I want to understand how they think about life in general. The other, of course, the other instrument or profile that's thought about is this idea of the big five emotional qualities, which I can't think of them all. I can never list them all, but they're things like open to new ideas, introversion or extroversion, being non-judgmental. And I, you know, particularly in analysis, I'm definitely looking for those qualities. Carmen, what we have seen in our business is this growing trend for hiring specific protective intelligence analysts, which for me is phenomenal. And these are analysts that focus in the protection realm of either how to protect a corporation or how to protect a CEO. If you were looking to hire a protective intelligence analyst for that purpose, what would be a couple things that you would look for in that analyst? In looking for a protective analyst, someone who could identify threats and, and dangerous situations for an organization or for an individual. One of the things I might look for is someone who reads a lot of fiction. I know that sounds perhaps a little odd, but someone fiction is very good at outlining the full range of human emotions, depravities, ingenuity. And uh, if you are a threat analyst, I think that you have to have an imagination that allows you to consider the threats that are not obvious to others. The you know, whatever threat profile you develop and guard against, then the one that becomes most dangerous is the one that's not in your model. And I think that I would like to hire someone who's got those qualities. I also, I think, in a, particularly for a threat analyst, I would be looking for people with high attention to detail and indefatigable research skills. I definitely don't want to hire an analyst who gets easily bored, for example. And one of the downsides of creative people is that they do get easily bored and distracted. And, and I think in a threat environment, I, I would not want those qualities. Carmen, I've heard you talk about how worst case scenarios can happen. Can you explain that? So we often, when we're trying to think about the future of a particular situation, 
we often create this, often a two by two quadrant where we think about the most likely scenario and a couple of alternatives. And then we think about the worst case scenario. So often, you know, you have the most positive, two sort of intermediate scenarios and a worst case scenario. And when you present the worst case scenario to your customer, a policymaker, a CEO, when you, and I, I say this from significant experience, when you say the words worst case scenario, they hear unlikely. You don't necessarily mean unlikely, but that's what they hear. It's human nature to dismiss that Worst case as something that's not going to happen to me because I'm too smart. It, it's just going to, I'll be able to avoid it. So I think it's very important for all analysts to understand that your customer will internalize a worst case scenario as being an unlikely one. And you've got to work really hard at getting them to understand that a worst case scenario such as COVID-19 can in fact happen. One advice that I got from another, from a colleague, it's not my original idea, but it's a good one. He told me that he stopped using the phrase worst case scenario. He doesn't use it anymore precisely because of this problem. And now he just talks about the most dangerous scenario when he's presenting that situation. And I think that's a, a better turn of phrase to use. Do you think that also exists in the business community, Carmen, based on some of the work you've done uh, with the business community as well, that CEOs would or the executives would, would uh, just discount that as a probability? Well, you know, I saw it firsthand. I was speaking at a conference uh, the first week in February this year, and I was asked to talk about cognitive biases. And I framed my entire conversation around the, at that point, barely emerging coronavirus issue. And when I told some good friends that I was going to talk about coronavirus, we were attending the conference, some former colleagues, one of them said, oh, well, that's just, just another type of flu. And I looked at that person and I was like, no, it isn't. And extremely worried because this was advice that this individual was giving to their clients. And when I made the presentation, I I could see that there were a lot of people there who were dismissing the likelihood of anything really horrible happening, which my point was that I thought there was a good chance that something horrible would happen. And these were all business intelligence types. So I think that to become a CEO, a leader of an important company, you are used to overcoming obstacles. Your whole mental framework is that there isn't a problem you can't handle. And so you are as likely as anybody else to fall into the worst case scenario is unlikely trap. Yeah, that's fascinating. Talk a little bit about cognitive traps, would you, Carmen? Sure. There's so many of them and, and so many of them are written about. And I, I like to concentrate on some of the ones that are not so obvious. For example, people tend to do a lot of trend analysis thinking that trends are about the future. And I like to point out that trends are always about the past. In fact, there's only one trend that people talk about that is legitimately about the future, in my opinion, and those are demographic trends. You know, the size of your population determines the size of your future population, and, and that's kind of unavoidable. But after demographic trends, trends are always indicators about the past. And I think that 
a lot of people misuse trend analysis to claim that they know something about the future when they when they really don't. Uh, another one of my favorite, not often talked about cognitive traps, is the notion that our ability to know is always a function of our tools for knowing. So our ability to know is always a function of our knowledge tools. And what we don't realize is that our knowledge tools are always inadequate. You can go through the history of, for example, our knowledge of the universe. 500 years ago, we had no concept of a universe. In fact, we thought the sun rotated around the earth. Galileo happened to be the best maker of telescopes in Italy at the time, and he used this new tool to realize that, in fact, we had it all wrong, that the Earth was part of a solar system that orbited the sun. And I could continue along this vein and show you how every advance in our knowledge of the universe is really the story of the development of a new tool. Where this gets very dangerous for knowledge workers and intelligence analysts is because we, we don't have this concept, this hum we're not humble about our knowledge tools, we tend to believe that whatever our tools show us is actually reality. When in fact, what our tools show us is always just a slice of reality at best, because they, they might actually be completely incorrect about reality. And we tend not to know what part of reality we're not able to observe. So we have this kind of infantile habit of believing that reality conforms to what we know. And reality does not conform to what we know. We'll get back to the conversation in just a moment. But first, I wanted to tell you a little about OnTech's Center for Protective Intelligence. In the world of protective intelligence, we know that gathering and sharing information is crucial. That is why we created the OnTech Center for Protective Intelligence. We are regularly sharing strategies and best practices, insights, lessons learned from current and historical trends, as well as lessons learned from physical security experts like you. To find blogs, podcasts, webinars, white papers, and more, check out the center by visiting ontech.ai slash center. That's ontech.ai slash center. Carmen, I know you ran the the Sherman Kent School where the CIA trains all their analysts. And certainly we know from experience there has been intelligence failures. Why do you feel at times we get it wrong? Well, I think getting it wrong is a common occurrence in our profession. So we have to have a different approach to this. We are going to get it wrong. And we have to figure out ways to mitigate the impact of when we get things wrong. We get things wrong often because the world in reality is much more complex than we are assuming it is. One of the things I like to say, it's actually another one of my cognitive biases, is we're not very good at understanding exponential causality. So people are familiar with exponential as it applies to numbers, but it also applies to cause and effect relationships. There are many cause and effect relationships 
going on in the world. We don't see a lot of them, and they're explosive in their consequences. You know, one cause and effect relationship today could lead to a hundred different secondary relationships in the coming weeks. So I think that, you know, our inability to understand how complex the world really is, and in particular, how complex causality is, leads to a lot of intelligence failures. When we simplify a problem, we're almost always getting it wrong. And it's, that's tough because sometimes you have to simplify it for example, to communicate something to a customer, you've got to make it simpler. But I, I think that that causes a lot of our intelligence failures. And, and I would add just one other factor is kind of the emotional and unpredictable quality of human beings. It's human existence is extremely messy. And to be an intelligence analyst, you have to clean it up. It's like, you know, cleaning up the data if you're a data scientist. But when you try to clean up human nature, you will almost certainly overlook something very significant, some emotional reaction that, for example, that you haven't factored into your analysis. Carmen, I've heard you say before that a great analyst is a philosopher of knowledge. What did you mean by that? I think a, a great analyst actually spends a lot of time thinking about what is knowledge, what is information, and what are the processes by which we can generate better thinking and better ideas? That certainly was my experience when I was in the intelligence community. I started off fascinated by particular parts of the world, such as South Africa. But as my career progressed, I became less interested in the actual substance, international relations, and much more interested in knowledge and how we generate good ideas, and what is good thinking. I remember, just to drop a name, having this conversation with John McLaughlin, a former deputy director of the CIA, and he and I both found ourselves having had that same journey. We began by being interested in substance, and we found that actually the philosophy of knowledge was a much more compelling topic for us. And I, and I would say that if you become a senior intelligence officer, you become a manager of an analytic uh, unit, you should be spending much more time trying to figure out what's the best way for me to help the analysts be good thinkers than trying to figure out, you know, what's the next move that, you know, the leader of Pakistan is going to make. I think that's often lacking in intelligence units, that the leadership is too consumed by the details, doesn't step back and think about a knowledge strategy, for example, to tackle the particular problem that they're facing. Carmen, in our careers, in our lifetime, we've seen uh, amazing technology developments. I mean, when I started uh, as a special agent, we were dealing with three by five index cards and had typewriters. Uh, where do you see technology evolving as it pertains to the intelligence community? Wow. As, as you know, Fred, I always had a, a real interest in technology when I was in the intelligence community because I felt that what was going on, the digital revolution was going to change the way all knowledge organizations work. So clearly, artificial intelligence is the next big thing on the horizon. And I think that figuring out what humans can do well 
and what machines can do better is going to be an important leadership responsibility in the years to come. I always thought that the analyst had a tendency to spend too much time on what I thought was just manual labor, you know, just reading for filtering purposes. And that I was hopeful, and I think now with artificial intelligence, it's going to become a reality that that kind of filtering will be done by machines. And I think that will leave a lot of work for human analysts, but perhaps we won't need quite as many. And then I, I, you know, I'm not a scientist, but I'm also intrigued with what quantum computing will be able to do as it is perfected and then applied to intelligence tasks. I think there's, you know, there's just some fantastic research being done on quantum physics. And and these are research that could completely change how we think about the world. For example, just to say something outrageous, you know, there are some scientists who believe that there is, for example, the potential for remote viewing. In other words, getting some kind of insight about the future based on the principles of quantum physics. I don't know if that would ever happen, but man, it would change the work of analysts a lot, wouldn't it? (laughs) It most certainly would. Uh, Carmen, over the course of your career, you have mentored a generation of analysts. And uh, what advice do you give to people if they come to you and say, you know, look, I'm kind of stuck in my career. I might be a protection officer and I want to be an analyst or I'm an analyst. I really want to be a protection officer. What do you typically say in moments like that? When people ask me for career advice, and even when they worked for me, this is true, I always encourage them to pursue what they believed at the time that they were really interested in, even if it meant that they were going to leave my team. And even if I thought it would be very sad if they left the team. Because I think the key to a good life, to good teams, to good outcomes is when people are in the situation that best suits their talents. I like to say that if you pick the right person for a job or that right person happens to get the job, then you don't, you don't have any job to do as a manager because that, you know, the, the 90% of management is making sure that people are doing the job that they're best suited for. So I would, you know, if you have a strong feeling that, that there's something that you're better suited for, I would never discourage them. I would, I would encourage them to do some hard research on it. And by hard research, I mean talking to people who are doing the job and asking them questions like, you know, what's the thing you hate most about this job? When you get home, and, and you've had a horrible day, describe what that day looked like. Because only when you find out the good and the bad of a job are you going to really understand whether it's right for you. And I guess the only other thing I would say is I, I always discourage people to be, I guess the word I use is careerist, to just be obsessed with getting the next promotion and not spending as much time thinking about what am I really well suited to do. I think if you end up finding the thing that you're really best suited to do, all things being equal, the promotions and the rewards will come to you. But I think if you get a reputation in any kind of organization of being career first and mission second, it's going to hurt you. Yeah, that's, uh, that's well said. 
Carmen, in our business, as you know, you spend a lot of time on the road or you're sitting in down rooms or you're watching cameras. Uh, there's a lot of time to read. What two or three books would you recommend people to read? I always recommend Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. I thought his work on basically cognitive biases, and also he does a lot of work on exponential causality, I think is a must read for intelligence analysts, people in the, in the threat intelligence business. Another book that I read many years ago, but really impressed me as a work of analysis was Guns, Germs, and Steel. I can't remember the author's name. Maybe it's Jared Diamond. And I think it's a really great example of someone who explores history and takes a very sophisticated look at causality. And therefore, I think he punched holes in some common myths and legends that we had about the origins of humanity. And then I, I guess the third one is I would say, read any good history about any problem that you're interested in. I, I find that a really well-researched history is in essence an exploration of causality. You know, what really contributed to this particular situation turning out the way it did? And it's always way more complex than uh, people imagined it was when they looked at it superficially. So whatever topic you're interested in, it could be cooking, it could be hunting, it could be Germany, it doesn't matter. Find a well-written, well-reviewed history and read it. And I would add to that list, uh, Rebels at Work, a handbook for leading change from within by Carmen Medina. Carmen, thank you so much for being on the OnTech Protective Intelligence Podcast. It's my pleasure, Fred. Thanks very much for having me. This episode was brought to you by the OnTech Center for Protective Intelligence. Learn more at ontech.ai slash center. Again, that's ontech.ai slash center. It was produced by A.J. McKeon. Our music is a track called Monte Verde Ride and was written by Brian Bristow and performed by Smoke and Novas. Check them out on Spotify. Please remember to rate and review our podcast on iTunes and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have questions, we'd love to hear them. You can reach us at podcast at ontech.ai or visit ontech.ai slash center for more information. And thanks for listening.